Radio Survivor, two interviews on the state of low-power radio in the United States. Stations that are on the air without a license, also known as pirate radio, and low-power stations that have the FCC's permission to broadcast, due in part to the hard work of the former pirates. My name is Eric Klein. First up on the show today is an interview that we recorded at Radio Survivor with Pete Tredish. Pete Tredish is a member of the founding collective of Radio Mutiny, an unlicensed station that broadcast in Philadelphia in the 90s in open defiance of the FCC's rules prohibiting low-power community broadcasting. Petri Dish went on to become a founding member of the Prometheus Radio Project and then the International Media Action, where he organized barn raisings, radio barn raisings, which is building a full radio station with hundreds of volunteers in just about three days. And Petri Dish actively participated in the rulemaking process. He, he got his hands dirty in Washington, D.C. Uh, that led up to the official adoption of Low Power FM. Uh, Petri Dish spoke with Paul Reese Mendel of Radio Survivor and myself in November of 2016. I only work on nonprofit stations and uh, non commercial stations. I mostly focus on a lot of farm worker stations. Uh, farm worker stations. Yeah, farm work for, for farm workers' unions, for schools, environmental groups, uh, that sort of thing. And I've been doing it, well, for the first bunch of years with. Prometheus Radio Project, and now with a new organization called International Media Action. And I do uh, most of my work in the United States, but more and more I, I try to work outside. So I think I'm up to about 40 states and about 19 countries uh, of doing like some form of, you know, work with or workshops and community radio. Well, it's a good thing we have like six or seven hours to uh, really <laughs> dig in. <laughs> it is a podcast. <laughs> but uh, we'll, we'll start with uh, what, what brings you here to uh, beautiful uh, Oregon and the Pacific Northwest because uh, it was a, a momentous occasion that, 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 is, that just happened. And maybe you could tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally fantastic. Back when I was working with the Prometheus Radio Project, which is a group that uh, worked to expand the low-power radio service and and create opportunities for small civil society organizations to have their own radio stations, uh, one of our, our best partnerships was with a group called PECUN, Pinheiros y Campesinos Unidos del Nuestre. And they are local to here. They are a farm workers' union. Uh, but they're more than a farm workers union. They have nine associated nonprofits, you know, one that works on immigrants' rights, one that works on uh, youth development, uh, leadership development. Uh, they have a housing uh, community development corporation. And uh, they had wanted to build a radio station for a very long time. They actually bought time on a station called KWBY, Cowboy, uh, in order to reach their constituents of, of, of farm, farm laborers. <laughs> and they paid $300 an hour wow. uh, in order to have that time and reach out to everyone. In, in what region of Oregon? In Woodburn. In Woodburn, Oregon. What can you tell us about the geography of Woodburn? I think Woodburn? it's about it's about an hour south of Portland and, and, and agricultural. agricultural community. Yeah. It's also sort of near Salem, the, uh, the state capital of, of Oregon. That's pricey. Yeah. <laughs> well, and this was 15 years ago. Uh, so uh, it was quite a bit of money. And But the owner of the station 
was a friend of the owner of the strawberry fields that they wor- that their uh, constituents worked in. And after a couple months, like a Steinbeck ju- novel. Yeah, it, just like it. He just said, you know, I don't want your money. You can't have a show on my station anymore. And so when the Low Power Femme opportunity came up, uh, a wonderful woman who's local to here, uh, Andrea Cano, who was working on uh, a group called Micro, Micro Radio Implementation Project, uh, reached out to them. And uh, they were like, of course we want a radio station, you know? And, and this is a group that really knows the difference between being a renter and an owner mm-hmm. of, 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 of something like this. And they are very, very deliberate in their plans to, you know, to, to work and, and build power for their community. So um, the radio station was like a very, uh, you know, a very big deal for them. And uh, so Prometheus, what we did was we had these events that we called radio barn raisings, where we would bring a whole bunch of volunteers and build a radio station over the course of a weekend. And so uh, I think it was our 10th radio barn raising that we did in Woodburn. And uh, we brought about three or 400 people for two or three days. This would be how many years ago? 10 years ago. Okay. And we basically had about 40 or 50 workshops and like how to run a radio station, how to wire up the mixing board, how to, you know, make a studio transmitter link. And over the weekend, we, you know, put the antenna up on the tower and built out the studio. There was a lot of support from local labor. I remember SEIU came out uh, with a bunch of volunteers to help out. And, uh, you know, on the whole idea is that, you know, one thing that leftists have a lot of problems with is we we're always in the circular firing squad. And so <laughs> one of the, the things that we really shot for in these barn racings was to make a deadline and a time pressure. Like, do you want the farm workers to have a radio station on Sunday night or do you not? Mm-hmm. And so like the pressure That's of like of a real of actual goal oriented behavior made uh, made our events like just kind of magical in a, in a way, just like to be able to like really force us all to focus on, on, on what was important and sort of build between the communities. Um, and, uh, so we, you know, so, so that happened about 10 years ago and, uh, and they just had their 10th anniversary with, uh, uh, the head of the United Farm Workers Union here, the head of Radio Bilingue and, um, and, uh, the new, uh, state Senator, uh, what was her name again? Her name is Teresa Alonso Leon. Right. Right, and she was she just was elected to state representative in Oregon. Yeah, yeah. for the Woodburn area, but but ah, her election o- is is monumental for for uh, for one big reason. Rural She's- Oregon doesn't elect Democrats usually. I'm gonna guess. <laughs> I'm just gonna guess. Well, and it also has not before her district has not yet uh, elected uh, a Latina or uh, an indigenous woman. She's a uh, oh, wow. pecha, so she's the she's the first. And uh, they had a, a, a beautiful crew of 20 uh, teenagers that went around and do- knocked on 35,000 doors for her, for her election. So, uh, And was this, was this organizing effort related to the radio station? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, like they're all in Pacoon's network of, you know, of people that, that, that they've worked with, uh, you know. So, so... Anyway, just a fantastic event, and you know, especially uh, after the election, uh, to see uh, the difference between you know what kind of happens with neoliberal 
corporate Democrats uh, and, you know, that, that think that they can just, you know, they're like owed the office uh, and real grassroots organizing, you know, like people that are just like really building power, going door to door and, and really doing it. So it was a it was a very, very hopeful event. And it's really great to see what they've done with the station. Uh, there was also a woman who uh, uh, they, they broadcast in three languages now, uh, two indigenous languages wow. and, uh, in addition to Spanish. And, uh, so yeah, just really thrilling. It, it definitely one of the, the stations, uh, that I've been associated with that, that I'm just the most thrilled about what they've managed to do with it, uh, in terms of, of, you know, building their community. So. Uh, you know, a couple of things I learned, uh, was some, some history, uh, about, um, Cesar Chavez in particular, um, because it turned out that uh, what uh, Arturo Rodriguez mentioned is that going back to Who's 19- Arturo Rodriguez, um, he is the uh, UFW president current. Okay. So and he was United at Farm last Markers. night's event celebrating yeah. the 10 year anniversary of this radio. Station. Yes. Thank you. Um, and he talked about how going back to 1962, when they when they were first organizing uh, farm workers in in California, and you know was, was the beginning of the sort of the congresses that would create the UFW, even then they were they were imagining having a network of radio stations, you know because that would be a way to communicate you know very directly to uh, to folks both in the home and I and I suppose also in in the field and I, and I didn't know it it goes that, that far back and he mentioned now that there. Are, uh, Many, many stations uh, across uh, the West, it sounds like, but probably elsewhere, and, and Peter, you can probably fill that in now, that are operated uh, by and for farm workers. Yeah, there are a number. I, there aren't enough, but there are, um, you know, uh, I think in the dozens, you know, uh, and it's, a, it's a quite an achievement. It's also, you know, one thing uh, about Pacoon that I just find really amazing is uh, they, before they even started, they had this kind of understanding of what radio would do for them that went way beyond what a lot of the other groups that I've worked with have. I mean, they definitely wanted to have a daily connection with their constituents. They didn't want to have to knock on doors every time that they wanted to get a message out to their constituents. And so that's a big thing. But the other thing that they were thinking about was they, they were like, you know, Latinos are a majority in the area of Woodburn but they are a minority of voters. Uh, and so there is a real big power imbalance between like, you know, the people that are there versus the people that get elected in, in office. But they start to realize that, you know, as children are growing up, they're reaching voting age, there was, there's going to be a moment where they could start electing people to office. And one of the things that they really wanted the radio station for, you know, they had a bunch of you know, leaders of the nonprofits that they work with, the housing group, the the youth group, the women's group. Um, and they wanted them to be prepared to be able to, to run for office one day. You know, they wanted them to be used to speaking in public, to speaking to a, a pretty good general audience. And they wanted them, uh, and they wanted a, like, in some ways, the radio to be a school of, of public speaking and, you know, researching issues, debating, talking about things. And, you know, so to, to come back after, you know, after 10 years and see they had a plan, they stuck to their plan, they did it. And you they're know? seeing the fruits, <laughs> they're actually seeing the fruits of that labor. Yeah, yeah. 
and uh, and you know really developing. Um, you know, developing their ability, the ability of their community to defend itself. And it was, you know, it was also just, you know, uh, uh, on such a night when like so many people have become so afraid of, of what, uh, you know, the new president wants to do. Right. We're, we're about eight days out from the election of Donald Trump. So it's, it's still a very fresh, very fresh wound for, for a lot of people. That was a room full of people that were not afraid. You yeah, know, they they were like, you know, we've been through things that, you know, have been, uh, you know, as bad as this. And, you know, we, we always knew there would be more. And uh, so it was it they've was really seen, inspirational. They've seen see. autocracy in their own in their own countries <laughs> or mm-hmm. or in here. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 you know, I mean, the history of Oregon in particular, you know, I think folks who are not familiar so much uh, see the sort of modern day progressive Portland and make certain assumptions, but uh, that progressivism is fairly recent, and there's a pretty terrible racist history uh, in in Oregon um, in communities that that uh, certainly prejudice against people uh, and all sorts of people who are not of white European descent. Yeah, I, th- I do think all of our elected officials are. Well, I know for a fact it's a it's a mostly white to Washington at least. elected yeah. body. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, and so I, I'm you know, too. it yeah. was it was a great insight of theirs, and it actually reflects. There's a scholar of of uh, communications, Clemencia Rodriguez, who did her work in Colombia, and one of the things that she said is, if you look at community radio by the metrics that were designed for commercial radio about like how well you can sell ads right. using it, well, yeah, we we kind of suck. Right. I mean, you just can't sell as many ads to, you know, the listeners. But when you look at some of its bigger, you know, impacts, uh, one of them is the way that it changes the people that participate. You know, the way when when, you know, youth get involved in it and when when people have like, you know, an ability to express themselves about different issues, how it shapes the ability of people to be, you know, part of a democracy. And, uh, you know, so that's something that they got, you know, right off the bat and very deliberate about. That's wonderful. And so you, you're now at this point helping stations to get built out low power FM stations and community radio stations and, uh, you know, full power stations ostensibly. Um, and we're at this moment where we are now three years after the licensing window was open and, and a little less than three years since licenses, uh, construction permits actually have been handed out to low power FM stations and the construction permits have an expiration date. <laughs> they sure do. You don't, they're, they are not infinite. It's not, here's a license to, to build a station and do it sometime in the next 10 years. Uh, it's, it's something more like 18 months. Is that, is that correct? It's 18 months. For uh, low power FMs, and it's extendable for another eighteen months. Um, and you know, it's actually it, it's such a funny thing, you know, going from uh, doing policy work to try to form the service and to you know force the government to pass it uh, to you know the actual daily practice, you know, and 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 how it comes down for people, you know, when they're when they're actually building the things. And uh, there is a very good policy reason for expiring, uh, expiring construction permits. And that is if someone applies for, to build a radio station and then they don't build it for three years, that is a loss to the public of Mm -hmm. those airwaves that could have been used. 
And in fact, there's all kinds of nefarious people in broadcasting. You know, there are, there have been people who would apply for permits just to make sure that someone else didn't get them, and right. then they leave them off the air uh, just to keep the market uh, zero sum game. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I'm I'm glad the FCC makes the permits expire. What I'm not glad about is that the the windows are so infrequent and they are so there's no way you can plan for them that. You know, if you get a construction permit now, it's kind of your last chance because, you know, it could be 10 years before they open it again. And so it's really it creates this land rush mentality where, like, we have to, like, run around telling everybody that this is your last chance. You know, if you ever want to be on on the air, you know, you can't decide to do that next year. You've got to apply now. And. You've got to uh, get it and build it within this within a certain amount of time, and what that creates is just all you know. Lots of organizations they will start, and they will want to you know they'll get started on this process, but then something will change. Like you know, one thing that happened with the last time there was a full power window was it was in two thousand seven. And all these groups applied, and then boom, the recession hit, and there was no money to build them. And yeah, uh, just bad timing. Yeah, and and so that can like really just sabotage it. You know, another thing that I, as an advocate, I advocated for was not being able to transfer them, and there was a good reason for that. I mean, I did not want to see a secondary market in low power FMs where some, you know some nasty, creepy person would go and apply for hundreds around the country in, in the name Businessman, of shadow, entrepreneur. shadow organization <laughs> and, and, then, and then turn around and sell them to groups that want to do them. You know, I believe that they should be free and yeah. you know, because they're non-commercial licenses and I didn't really want to see a secondary market. Problem is, of course, sometimes you know, a group would apply, they wouldn't be able to build it, and then they wouldn't really be able to like they'd have get, to they'd have to die with it die on the vine yeah and so um, i mean the thing that would solve all this is if the fcc actually had <gasps> regular filing windows you mm-hmm. know where you knew every 2 years january 1st you know you would have a 4 day period where you could apply for a radio and that would fix a lot of things but the problem for the fcc with that is that they don't know how much funding they're going to have next year you know, so they're just sort of and so their ability to process the applications and and do all the due diligence necessary for this to roll out in a way that that meets the requirements and is and is to some extent fair. And yeah, they could have a, a Congress that is like, oh, you know, you know, throw government into the bathtub and smother it. You know, and uh, so they're very reluctant to to actually make commitments about what they're going to do in the future. So. Uh, it's a, a great reason for me to not be lobbying in Washington anymore and like building radio stations is <laughs> like when you understand the level of dysfunction and, mm-hmm. you know, crossed incentives and all that sort of thing. It just makes you wonder how the country doesn't like fall off into the ocean and, you know, just, you know, it's a, I, I was very happy to work on the one bill and I'm glad I'm not working <laughs> on another. How much time did you spend in Washington lobbying for, for radio policy? Uh, like 12 years okay. or so. Tell, tell yeah. me the dates, or uh, you know, roughly. Well, you know, uh, 1998, 
Okay. You know, we start, that was our first pirate radio demonstration, pushing the FCC towards adopting this. And, uh, and then I was done by 2011 uh, when we passed the Local Community Radio Act. And now you get to uh, see some of the fruits of that labor yourself as you go. I mean, you did certainly with with the barn raisings, you know, and, and I think, you know, I, I, I like to make sure to, to point out to listeners that while this most recent window of, of applications and licenses for low power FM resulted in, in thousands of, of applications, I think it's resulting in thousands of stations. Um, you know, this happened once before in, in 2000 and, uh, stations by and large are not able to get on in urban areas because of the, uh, spacing requirements, which were, uh, up, which were updated and improved with that 2011 local community radio act. Um, but hundreds and hundreds of stations went on then that are now like like Picoon Station in Woodburn are are in many cases thriving and yeah. and celebrating five seven eight ten years of service uh, or more because some of the stations first probably went on the air around two thousand two is that about right yeah it was a real sort of irony for me because you know when I was operating a pirate station in Philadelphia I. You know, I didn't know that, you know, five years from then I would be building radio stations in like rural, rural Louisiana Mm -hmm. and like, you know, like really small towns. But that's all that Congress allowed us for the first 10 years of the Power FM was these very rural stations. And to be honest, I mean, I uh, although I'm very angry about losing 10 years of like good urban broadcasting, it did force us to focus in the rural areas which I think, you know, the election tells us that was like, that was work worth doing, you know, Mm -hmm. that was, I mean, I think I would have had my sights set on the five stations that were available in Minneapolis, but instead I did spend a bunch of time in Woodburn and, you know, and, you know, up Louisiana and, you know, Immokalee, Florida and places that are really important. Imagine a healthy community radio station in every rural community in the United States. Yeah. You know, imagine... Imagine what a different country we could have if there was real community radio everywhere. Yeah. As opposed to special little island. Yeah. Petrie, you um you're here in Portland because you're celebrating this ten year anniversary of this station going on the air. I'm wondering how often you get that opportunity to see stations thrive that you help build? Um, you know, every so often. Um, you know, when I'm in a part of the country where, where I built a a station, I do, uh, I do try to visit if I can, uh, right now it's a hard moment because I do have so many that are expiring soon. And, and so construction permits that are expiring. Yeah. Stations that either get built now or forever hold. Yeah. So dead air. So I don't have a lot of time these days. Um, but I made time for Pacoon because they're just, they're just like one of the real special ones for us. But um, there are uh, there are a number that I've visited over the years. There's another one called Radio Conciencia and in Immokalee, that in Florida. I've gotten to to go back to and uh, help them do some upgrades. Um, there's a station in Opelousas, Louisiana, which was the first uh, radio station licensed to a civil rights organization that I went back to uh, once or twice. And actually, I haven't tell, tell us more about that station. Oh, that one was uh, fantastic. It was with uh, Southern Development Foundation, um, and they uh, 
who are from a part of Louisiana where Zydeco music was from. Mm -hmm. And when they were building, there was no other Zydeco music on the air. In in Louisiana. It, yeah, in, in well, in that town anyway. Okay. Yeah. I think there was like one one-hour show or something like that, but, you know, most everything was like country or classic rock or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, that was what where radio had gotten to by that time was just, you know, it was just so damn cheap to like put something on a million stations and, you know, that that something like Zydeco music was overlooked in, in the middle of Louisiana. And uh, so that organization uh, was, uh, it was uh, inspired by an amazing Catholic priest. Um, he was from Brooklyn, actually. And he was one of those Catholic priests that, um, you know, he would talk about Jesus and everything, but he also talked a lot about quantum theory and like Buddhism and whatever. You're just like one of these like polymath kind of guys, big prison prison reformer and uh, initiator of, of cooperatives. And, uh, you know, in Brooklyn, he might've just been like that kooky guy down the block, but in Opelousa, he was the weirdest guy they ever met and they loved him. Like mm. they just, what a, what a cool priest to have. And so he really inspired uh, Father McKnight. And he, he also started a group called Blacks United for Spiritual Togetherness. Just like a, a, a great thing. It was like kind of like meeting Gandhi or something like that. Mm. It was just like really very cool. Um, and so he really uh, had developed a great organization there. Uh, and, uh, so they were very eager to have the radio station and we did a barn raising there, I think in 2003, uh, where, you know, we just brought a bunch of people together and put the station together over the weekend. And, um, you know, it, it was, uh, it was really touching. And fr from what I know, they're still on the air and they're still doing well. And mm. it, it was just like a really great fit for that community. Well, um, tell us about the, like the baby, tell us about the newest radio station you helped get on the air. Um, let's see. Uh, well, uh, one that I did this summer that I'm particularly thrilled about is, uh, Zoomix, uh, in Boston. Uh, that group, uh, it is a children's after school music program that started in, re in, uh, response to, uh, a wave of youth violence in East Boston. And basically the founder, uh, Madeline, uh, she uh, started bringing kids over to her house and uh, organizing guitar lessons and drum lessons and stuff, just like something to keep kids off the street and get them connected to the adult world and not just the, you know, the drug world and whatever. And over the, over the ensuing, whatever it's been, 20 years, she... Uh, was given an old firehouse, which hmm. she renovated. And uh, now it's got thousands of children involved uh, with all kinds of musical classes and with an internet radio studio. Uh, they have a little business where they do uh, sound production. So like you can get kids to come and like operate your soundboard for your event. Wow. And uh, so great organization. They've been interested in radio since the nineties. I visited once on one of my little, you know, I, you know, back in those days I would like go around like trying to incite people to, 
to start pirate radio stations. Johnny Appleseed. And I went, I had this uh, little lunchbox transmitter with an umbrella antenna that I would mm-hmm. bring and like show to groups. And so it was like a little spy pirate radio sort of, maybe like the penguin or something like that. You know, like, <laughs> I'm um, going to stick with this Johnny Appleseed before I figure it out. Let me keep thinking. So anyway, it was one that I had visited such a long time ago. And they, they always, you know, when, when they could do an internet stream, they, they did that, but they always wanted to be on FM. And so um, we, we put that together this summer. And it's a collaboration with a local high school. So the studio is actually in the high school. The high school roof is on kind of a nice high point for East Boston. And uh, so... That one was a, a real thrilling one to 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 see. That's uh, a really true. really exciting radio station. Yeah. I want to know more. We can. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's it's the wonderful part about doing this show, is that a very uh, what's turned out to be a huge component of this is just learning about all of the interesting stations and all of the great applications that radio is being turned to. That's the voice of Paul Reismandel of Radio Survivor. My name is Eric Klein, and my thanks to Petri Dish for sitting down with us at Radio Survivor. That interview was recorded in November of 2016. It aired originally as episode number 72. Up next on Radio Survivor, John Anderson of DIYmedia.net. This interview was originally recorded in October of 2017. This year, uh, it seems like the FCC once again is uh, saying that uh, pursuing unlicensed broadcasters is a priority. So uh, give us some some context. What's going on? Well, Paul, uh, this is a process that's been in play for a few years now. And it was something that the former FCC, Democratic controlled under Chairman Tom Wheeler, actually struggled with. Um, there's just simply been a proliferation of unlicensed stations uh, in the last two decades uh, to such an extent that there is no meaningful mechanism by which the Federal Communications Commission, which is responsible for enforcing broadcasters to have a license, can actually begin to keep up with it. And, you know, the demographics of who are involved, the constituencies of who are involved over the last 20 years have changed. Back in the 90s, it was a much more politicized thing where people were taking to the air you know, as kind of an act of electronic civil disobedience in order to pressure the FCC to to put pressure on their enforcement protocols and resources to open up the airwaves to allow for more, uh, you know, public community style broadcasting. And of course, that was something that led to policy change uh, through the promulgation of the LPFM radio service. Since then, um, there has been continued growth in unlicensed broadcasting, but it's not by people or communities that are necessarily engaged or even very aware of communications policy and how the FCC does its stuff. Uh, This is specifically immigrant communities. And of the various immigrant communities that have been involved in pirate radio in the last, you know, since 2000-ish, you find a lot of Latino uh, stations. And Latino is a broad term, but, you know, Ecuadorians are not the same as Mexicans who are not the same as Spaniards, you know. So you have a lot of uh, diversity among a, a growing population within the United States that is not served or underserved by legitimate broadcasting. And then you also have uh, people from Caribbean countries, uh, specifically Haiti, where radio has always been a cultural touchstone. I mean, they've gone through upheavals, natural disasters, and coups. And in many of those uh, circumstances, 
radio has been the lifeline by which people actually uh, not only inform themselves about what's taking place in their communities, but also to talk to each other. A lot of these folks have come to America, you know, since 2000 or before, and they have brought those practices with them. And so you've seen a proliferation of unlicensed stations, primarily in major markets and three of them specifically, uh, the New York, New Jersey, metro area, Florida, uh, Miami, and other places, and then uh, Massachusetts, primarily Boston and uh, surrounding communities. And the FCC has acknowledged this. It, it understands that this is taking place. But in the early 2010s, um, the FCC also was coming to terms with the fact that because austerity exists in all of our governmental structures, they simply do not have the resources to deal with this properly. So under the Democratic chairman, Tom Wheeler, the FCC actually uh, reduced its footprint of enforcement offices and agents around the country. And that was something that made licensed broadcasters very, very angry because they look at pirates as some sort of cancerous infestation of airwaves that they have total ownership and control over. And since the early 2010s, the broadcast industry has basically been conducting a campaign of research and propaganda to demonize unlicensed broadcasters and through Congress uh, to put pressure on the Federal Communications Commission to do something about it. Wheeler wasn't going to bite. Um, he stuck to his guns as far as saying these are the practical limitations of what we can do as a regulator. But now we have uh, Trump controlled FCC and the new chairman is Ajit Pai and his uh, number two guy is uh, Michael Riley. Uh, and Michael Riley in specifically has made unlicensed broadcasting kind of his hobby horse. So he goes around to all the industry conferences and makes uh, strange pronouncements about how dangerous pirate stations can be. Uh, that'll fry your brain. It'll take advertising revenue away from licensed stations, which will crater that aspect of our communications economy. It's just crazy, crazy stuff. But they've basically adopted a mentality of we need to make this more of an enforcement priority. So long story short, yes, there has been an uptick over the last year or so in the amount of enforcement activity that the FCC is uh, conducting in the field. The kicker is, is that enforcement activity is still relatively meaningless. It's uh, administrative. It involves visiting stations and asking some questions and following up with a certified warning letter. And uh, that's never worked. It's not working now. Um, and they've been looking to fine uh, unlicensed broadcasters, 10, 15, 20,000. They actually uh, knocked some pirates in South Florida recently with a $144,300 fine. Wow, is that a record? Uh, that's a record for a single unlicensed broadcasting uh, a forfeiture. It's not a forfeiture yet. They've they've said we're going to fine you and this is the number, but it's another administrative process before the actual forfeiture notice comes out with the thing that says pay this money to a P.O. box in Chicago. But um, the interesting thing of looking at these cases is, you know, the trade press, the radio industry trade press is looking at all of this as like they've turned over a new leaf. We've got an FCC chairman that really cares about radio and he's taking this pirate thing seriously. But all he's really doing is speeding up the administrative enforcement protocols that is going on right now. I mean, in this $144,000 case, if you actually go back through the data and, I, you know, this is my 20th year 
basically building a database of FCC enforcement actions against unlicensed broadcasting. So I can go back and look, have these people actually been, you know, uh, warned, visited, fined, raided uh, in the past? And guess what? In this case in South Florida, all of the above. Uh, these people have been warned, they have been fined, uh, they have been raided, their equipment has been seized. One of them was you know, charged under Florida's anti-pirate radio state law over the last decade and nothing has happened. So, so, so wait, that- let me, let me wrap my head around this, right? Cause I think for yeah. a lot of folks, like they hear, you know, of pirate radio and they think, you know, maybe they've seen the film, uh, with Christian Slater, right? Pump up the volume, Pump up the volume. Pirate radio with, uh, Oh, Philip, Philip Seymour, Seymour Hoffman. Hoffman. Right. Yeah. And so they, yeah. they, they imagine, right. You know, uh, the guy running or, you know, driving around the Jeep, with with the FCC vans ch- chasing him, right, or yeah. or you know someone out offshore with with you know the the police boats coming up on them, right? Yeah. And, and you hear about this, right? And you say, well, how is it that you know why can't they go in and, and you know and, and treat them like like drug dealers or even treat them like jaywalkers, right? Yeah, right. And, and write a ticket and and hand it over and 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 sign them up for their day in court. How is it that, that these particular uh, unlicensed broadcasters in Florida can have gone through all of this and are still broadcasting and now get this, you know, over a hundred thousand dollar fine. How is, how has it happened? How does it get to this point where this is still going on? The FCC's never in the entire history of the agency from 1934, even before with the Federal Radio Commission in 1927 and the Department of Commerce before that. It's always been a requirement in the United States that broadcasters have a license. But there is there has never been the resources and personnel and protocols devoted to actually enforcing that license. So pirate radio is something that is as native to the United States radio spectrum as radio itself. Um, And also, if you think about what pirate radio is, it's a fairly victimless crime, right? It actually adds something uh, to the communications milieu that you have. Yes, some pirates can interfere uh, with stations nearby on the dial, and that's not an optimal situation, but it's not fuzzing these stations out with massive amounts of interference. Yes, uh, there have been cases in the past where pirates uh, have broadcast spurious emissions. Their transmitters are kind of wonky and they put out a little energy on other adjacent bands to like the FM dial. And that can be potentially dangerous, uh, but it has never been so. So historically speaking, regulators have looked at the notion of, well, if you're going to broadcast, you need a license, but they've never actually concretized the power <laughs> to enforce the license requirement. And when uh, the enforcement process takes place, like I said, this isn't cops doing it. These are FCC agents. They're they're trained engineers, you know, uh, with button down shirts and uh, dockers on. And they go out in fancy vehicles filled with a lot of equipment uh, that allows them to triangulate and find the location of these stations. And then they basically fill out forms. Okay, this is where the station's at. This is the frequency it's on. This is who's uh, listening. Um, This is how powerful it is. And then they begin the process of enforcement, which has been for the for the large part with a couple of, you know, isolated instances, purely administrative. Uh, Here's a warning letter. Here's a threat of a fine. Here's a document saying you need to pay us. But there's no mechanism that the FCC has to actually collect that stuff. So if I get fined for unlicensed broadcasting, 
and yeah. and I get this letter in the mail saying you owe us fifteen thousand dollars. What happens if I don't pay it? What happens if uh, I just ignore it? Yeah. I take take the letter, I stick it in the shredder, uh, I behave as if I didn't get it. Right, the same thing. You get some some bill you don't think you should have to pay. Pretty much nothing. Um, <laughs> you know, if you ignore the fine and you know, because this is a crime at a federal level, so to speak, uh, there's a statute of limitations attached to it. So typically once someone is fined, uh, the FCC has about five years to collect on that fine. And the last time the FCC actually studied its ability to collect on all forfeitures, that's just not against, you know, pirate radio broadcasters, but people that slam and cram you on phone bills and, uh, may, you know, angry, amateur radio people who actively interfere with police and fire frequencies or even like the cab company that didn't renew its license for its two-way radio out of out of all those fines the last time the fcc looked at their their collection success rate was back in 2000 and they just and the inspector general discovered that only 25 percent of all of those forfeitures are actually collected upon. And then you have to keep in mind the notion that collecting on a fine doesn't mean you're going to get the whole amount that you asked for. There's a great case that was just announced by the FCC um, on today, which is Friday, October 22nd or 27th, uh, for a guy in Irvington, New Jersey, um, who was running an unlicensed radio station on 107.9 FM. And back in 2014, 2015, the FCC received a complaint about this person and they went and visited his location multiple times. They spoke with them. They sent him warning letters. And in mid to late 2015, they issued this guy a $15,000 forfeiture. Okay. So you've broken the law. We've seen you breaking the law. There's a pattern pay up. Well, it turns out that instead of ignoring the fine, what this guy did was, and the FCC allows you to do this. You can submit documentation that shows you're too poor to pay it. And by the FCC's own regulations, they have to take that into consideration. So this guy submits financial documentation, like three years worth of tax returns, and says, look, I'm poor. And just you know, today, the FCC knocked that forfeiture down to $3,800. Sometimes the forfeitures are completely uh, just abolished. Sometimes they're knocked down to denominations as low as 500 bucks. So if you are a community connected unlicensed broadcaster um, who does events and things like that, if you get a 15 or $20,000 fine, you can ignore it and you have a pretty good chance of never having to pay again, uh, unless the FCC restarts the enforcement process, but that's a long convoluted multi-step thing. Or you can fess up and say, yep, I did it, but I'm poor. And then the FCC will knock it down dock the fine down to a level where you can pay it off. So if you got a $500 fine, hold a house party, you know, charge five bucks at the door, a hundred people show up, you pay the fine, you keep going, right? So the FCC needs to rethink the notion of who should have access to the airwaves and how we manage the spectrum to be more accommodating of a demonstrated need that serves the public interest, but the current regulatory structure simply forbids. So Professor John Anderson, uh, so you say that, you know, given the fact that pirate radio, unlicensed radio, is this, does exist as a sort of escape valve, right? It, and a lot of communities uh, and people from backgrounds uh, that, that don't have access to the airways at this point uh, simply, you know, 
simply put up their transmitter. They simply take them themselves because, frankly, there's there's just simply not so many barriers to doing so, and the enforcement mechanism is pretty squeaky, is pretty rusty. Um, so you say that okay, well, there should be other paths to uh, to use of the airwaves. So so what are you suggesting? I mean, you know, I can imagine that there's a lot of licensed broadcasters from you know, all the way from commercial broadcasters with, with you know, in, in large markets down to, to, you know, people who've got low power FMs who say, look, you know, we've, we worked really hard. We've worked really hard to get these stations on the air. We've invested mm-hmm. a lot of time, a lot of money, you know, uh, so we, we, there's value here. And, and, and to some extent you want to protect it. And you may look askance at folks who don't respect uh, the rules and the laws and go on the air. Uh, why should I support even that that we open this up, but don't they just sort of by the fact that they they aren't willing to go through the process to get say a low power FM license, which was which was you know something which a, a thousands and thousands of people did. Why should we make this space? What is it you're suggesting? Well, I guess the first thing you have to do is is you know define what it means to be a broadcaster and what your obligations are. You know, one of the reasons why it is so labor intensive and and fiscally, you know, troubling in some cases to build a brand new radio station is because the way that the government regulates access to the airwaves does not acknowledge the full capacity of those airwaves. So for example, the rules that the FCC puts down that says, here's the channels in any given market where a radio station can exist. And here's the separation that needs to exist between radio stations, both geographically and on the dial, multiple clicks away, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those rules, you know, basically were created 50 years ago. And the technology to both transmit and receive analog radio signals has improved dramatically in 50 years. If we can uh, provide tighter, more consistent broadcast quality through the transmission process, and we have more selective receivers that we can listen to, I mean, things like an FM radio and an Android phone are more selective than tabletop receivers of 20 years ago, you know, on the FM dial to a certain degree. if we have the technological capability to extend, expand the capacity of stations on the air and our ability to receive them, why don't we change the regulations to make for more station accommodation? And so I, I completely sympathize with people who say, I went through the process and it was hard and it was labor intensive and it was fiscally challenging, but that's not, that's not you. That's not the broadcaster's fault. That's the fault of the regulatory system putting barriers in place that basically have created spectrum scarcity artificially and created a level of buy-in necessary to build out these stations. So what I would like to see, for example, is something that has been adopted in other countries, uh, Italy in particular, where you can run uh, a radio station unlicensed if it's below a certain amount of power um, and only on areas where there may be fallow spectrum, right? Where there's some conceivable space between uh, stations on the dial. Even in a place like New York City, where I live now, uh, the FCC will say uh, the dial is full. There is no place to put more radio stations on the air. But according to the broadcast industry's latest uh, overview of the unlicensed broadcast situation in the tri-state area, there's more than 100 pirates on the air. There's more pirate radio stations on the air in New York City right now than there are licensed stations. That in itself 
demonstrates the fact that this, the airwaves have more spectral capacity than the FCC will provide licenses for. But aren't these but, uh, aren't these unlicensed stations? Aren't many of them interfering? Aren't they getting in the way? Some of them are to a certain degree, but then it also comes down to a question of how you define what interference is. So, for example, the public broadcaster WNYC complains a lot about stations, say, in Flatbush or Crown Heights that are making it difficult for uh, people to receive uh, their signals. Uh, my response to that is people in Flatbush and Crown Heights are not listening to WNYC. <laughs> So, so the, now why so, do you say that? I mean, so for, for someone who, who, who isn't aware of the demographics of Brooklyn. Well, Flatbush and Crown Heights are two of the largest Caribbean, uh, communities in the United States. In fact, in Flatbush, I think directly, well, in the borough of Brooklyn directly, we have the largest Haitian diaspora population in the country. Um, and so there's a critical mass of people here who need information and entertainment that is relevant to their lives. And they're not getting it from white milk toast tote bag carrying WNYC. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so, so yes, uh, technically those stations may interfere. They may interfere over a few square block radius where the number of people who are actually listening to the licensed channel uh, is infinitesimal to non-existent. At the same time, I still think that if you are broadcasting, even without a license, you need to be resp a responsible steward of the spectrum. So, you know, back in 2015, when Mike O'Reilly was starting this whole campaign to demonize pirate radio, uh, he brought in all of these industry folks to have a kind of council of war to talk through how they could, you know, change policy in order to bring the hammer down on these people. And then the Democrats on the FCC, like a month later, brought me in, you know, and asked me, uh, so what's the soft underbelly of the broadcaster's argument against pirates. And I basically said, the evidence shows that the airwaves have more capacity and there are things you can do to accommodate that. Like, um, devote particular channels in particular geographic areas of a market uh, to unlicensed broadcasting. Uh, work with unlicensed broadcasters to make sure that the equipment they're using is good, uh, that their antennas may be directional so that you're only covering the neighborhood where you know you have an audience as opposed to a unidirectional signal that goes out somewhere. Create a system of time sharing where if there are too many broadcasters who want to be on the air, uh, then there is capacity, especially in a market like the number one radio market, figure out a system by which they collaborate together and share a frequency. And I brought this up to Peter Doyle, you know, the retiring uh, audio bureau guy who's been very uh, involved in broadcast license policy. He was deep into the LPF. He even went to a barn raising that Prometheus Pro Radio Project did and helped build an LPFM station. As soon as I brought up these ideas, he was like, Oh, no, they're, they're just, no, that's just no, 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 there's no way that's not going to happen. And I was sitting there thinking to myself, that's a policy impediment. There isn't a scientific or empirical impediment to thinking about spectrum management differently. You're simply pointing at the rules and saying these rules are inviolable. My response to that is you need to question why that is. So there are options out there that exist other than treating this as some sort of scourge and adopting a war on X mentality. Um, but the current political trajectory of the country will not allow for even remotely considering this as a viable option.
you know, that set aside notion is something I, I you just mentioned. You know, I was in New Zealand about a year ago. Yes, and they right. actually have a few frequencies that are specifically set aside for unlicensed operation. When the rule is under a watt of power, um, you know, and there's a number of other rules. Uh, and the interesting thing is that, you know, when it comes to sort of them interfering with each other, since, since they're on set aside frequencies, they should, they are not interfering with a licensed broadcaster. Um, they're just supposed to work it out, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> you know, and they do and they don't, I noticed, uh, you know, it, you hear very little news about it because frankly, I mean, New Zealand is, is not a populous con- country and much of the country is actually fairly sparsely populated and, and sort of rural. So it's not the kind of density we see in like a New York, Chicago, LA kind of area. Um, but it seems like mostly it gets worked out that somebody just moves like a couple blocks, another direction and in problem solved. <laughs> because you, yeah, exactly. They're, they're limited, and I don't know that the regulator ever gets much involved. Again, it's it's hard to completely compare a, a country like New Zealand to to the United States. Uh, but New Zealand also has a well developed uh, commercial radio system, you know, and has had commercial radio a long time. It's and and, and as well as college radio, well developed college radio and community radio system. So in some ways, it, it's not not dissimilar from the United States. Yeah, exactly. Um, but we, we, that's just, you know, you're speaking crazy talk now because in the American policy context, uh, the notion has developed over time, primarily with the creation of the FCC and the Radio Act and the Telecom Act of 1996, that the public interest is best served by treating the public airwaves as a commodity uh, that develops an industry. So, this is something that, you know, micro radio activists 20 years ago were trying to highlight. The way we define what the public interest is, the way by which we conceive of policies and justify them is all based around the notion of making money. Uh, we need to support the creation of an industry. That, those were those are words that, you know, Herbert Hoover used at the radio conferences in the 20s when they were figuring out how they were going to put a regulatory system in place, like an expert regulatory system. And that paradigm has continued to exist. And there have been, you know, the development of public radio and community radio. All that stuff happened decades, you know, after the constitutive choices were made to treat radio spectrum and television spectrum primarily as a business opportunity, primarily as an industry. And and in today's media environment or political environment, if you even bring up that notion, ah, you must be a commie, the socialism, blah, 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 blah. So we can't even begin to have meaningful discussions with empirical evidence because simply even suggesting this as an idea is somehow so far beyond the pale as to not even be funny. I mean, if you really want to deal with cat and mouse war style uh, pirate radio, go to London. You know, and London uh, pirates will will you know rip up each other's antennas if they interfere with the, with each other. Uh, and the the broadcast regulator in the UK, their agents go out and literally vandalize stations because that's the quickest way to take them off the air. We haven't had that problem yet. So the way that we conceive of unlicensed broadcasting as being a problem relative to where it's been in other countries is we're, we're several decades beyond thinking about radio broadcasting, its role in society and who can have access to the airwaves than pretty much the rest of the world that has developed a broadcast regulatory system. 
And I think even in the UK, putting aside that that sort of war on pirates that they have in places like London, um, they do have like special temporary licenses and things like yep. that, right? Where You're you absolutely get, right. Where you can get a license for, say, a festival or for a season or, you know, and, and, and use a frequency uh, just for a little bit of time, though I think that their airwaves, their FM airwaves are significantly less crowded than the United States, if I'm not incorrect. No, I mean, if in a place like London, it sounds like a lot like New York, you know, it's a pirate, pirate, license station, pirate, 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 license station, license station, pirate, pirate, pirate. And depending on where you go in London, just like in New York or Boston or Miami, depending on what neighborhood you're in, you're going to hear different pirates. Uh, because of the diversity of the populations that exist in metropolitan areas um, and how they congregate together to create their own communities. And again, going back to the notion of cultural references, radio being something more important than what you would traditionally consider uh, white bread, middle class Americans who are all up in their phones now. And it's it's so prevalent, I think, even that there's a there's a BBC sitcom about yeah, yeah. about radio pirates. People just say nothing. It's People just great. do nothing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's I think it's I think it's on Netflix now. Even. Yeah, I think so. Um, I've seen it. I mean, it's a parody, and it certainly does oh, not yeah. paint them as the as the brightest bulbs in the uh, no. in the chain. But uh, it is is such a ubiquitous phenomenon. You know, you know, and also think about like in the UK, uh, they co opted the pirate movement to create BBC One. You know, uh, BBC back in the day didn't allow people to play rock and roll on their airwaves. So literally people built boats and put transmitters on them and went out into international waters and broadcast. Radio Caroline was one of those, one of the first pirate broadcasters that we kind of think of in the modern era. And, you know, when uh, there was a crackdown on those uh, stations, the BBC basically poached away the best talent and made them presenters on their, you know, nationwide pop music network. And now Radio Caroline's principals got a license. So they're actually building the a license station. Yeah. Is, uh, has gone legit. It's now, it's now in the fold. It took 50 years, <laughs> uh, but it's conceivable because the way regulators and the way the public and the way politics works there made a case for and they could understand the need for and uh, that that this is a good thing to have in our you know broadcast ecosystem. We're not there yet. I don't know if we'll ever get there, but pirate radio is not going to go away. And the FCC, even with their enhanced enforcement activities, they're just generating more paperwork. They're not actually moving in a direction of doing something that will provide a deterrent value. No one that I know that's ever been involved in or is currently involved in pirate radio is looking at the uptick in enforcement activity right now and going, Oh boy, I'm in trouble. I better watch my back or I better shut down. You know, they're kind of like, meh, it's a crap shoot, whether you get hit or not. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll take it as it comes, but in the meantime, I got work to do. And, uh, so long as that dynamic exists, this problem quote unquote will continue to exist. That's the voice of John Anderson of DIYmedia.net speaking with Paul Reese Mendel of Radio Survivor back in October of 2017. That interview originally aired as episode number 114. A link to that interview, full-length interview, hour-long interview in the show notes today at radiosurvivor.com, as well as the full-length interview with Petri Dish from episode number 72. We listened about half of that interview today on the episode that you just heard radiosurvivor.com is where you can check everything out as well as subscribe to this radio show to this podcast and find out how you can support the work 
My name is Eric Klein. Thank you so much to Paul Reese Mendel, John Anderson, and Petri Dish, and thank you for listening. <laughs>